I'm Mark Lynch, director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome back to the Middle East Political Science Podcast. On this week's episode, we are joined once again by Sarah Parkinson, Johns Hopkins University, Department of Political Science, School of Advanced International Studies, and one of the most interesting scholars currently working in the area of Middle East uh, political science. Uh, uh, Sarah is the author of Beyond the Lines, Social Networks and Political Palestinian militant organizations in wartime Lebanon. She's published a range of articles in World Politics and the American Political Science Review, many of which we've already talked about on this podcast. Sarah, well, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. So you've written a number of things recently, but one that really caught my eye was this piece in Foreign Affairs that uh, urges us to go back and look at the history of Lebanon and Israel's invasion of Lebanon in 1982 as we're trying to make sense of what's happening in Gaza. Could you tell us a little bit about the history here and you know what the role of the Palestinians in Lebanon was and why Israel saw this as a war that it needed to fight? Sure. Um, so first of all, Palestinian refugees have lived in Lebanon since the 1947 to 1949 Nakba, um, often just sort of shorthanded to 1948 Nakba, when between 100,000 and 130,000 refugees fled Zionist paramilitary violence in the Galilee region. So they settled predominantly in Lebanese coastal cities, about half of them in what became um, officially recognized refugee camps. Uh, they were banned from participating in various jobs, actually 72 different positions. They can't own property. So there was a lot of discrimination. And I get into some of the details of that in my book. But what becomes really significant is in 1969, um, under the Cairo Agreement, the PLO, the Palestine Liberation Organization, is given the task of administering the camps. Um, previously, had, it had been, they had been managed by um, a Lebanese intelligence agency. So when the PLO and the guerrilla factions are expelled from Jordan after Black September, they begin building a massive governance, cultural, and military apparatus in Lebanon. And this includes everything from healthcare systems um, to sponsoring dance teams to training both guerrilla uh, fighters and local militias. Now, the difference between guerrilla fighters and militias is that camp level militias are people who just defend their homes and their mm -hmm. camps. Um, now, in and, and given that the PLO and the its constituent guerrilla factions. So the PLO itself is not a militant group. It has the Palestine Liberation Army and various guerrilla factions under it. The guerrilla factions are like Fatah, the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, Asaika. Um, they have sort of all different political backgrounds. Um, they do begin launching attacks from Lebanon into Israeli territory, um, many of which target civilians. Um, so in there are various skirmishes back and forth. It, Israel retaliates by shelling southern Lebanon for harboring the Palestine Liberation Organization, um, as well as conducting things like commando raids and assassinations of Palestinian leaders in Lebanon. Uh, there's an invasion in 1978, which ends with two United Nations resolutions. The one reason that I want to mention this, other than the fact that this is basically the Israeli government's second attempt after 1968 in Jordan to, quote, like, wipe out the Palestine mm -hmm. Liberation Organization, is that thousands of people die and there's mass displacement from southern Lebanon. But it's also the establishment of a um, of a buffer zone on uh, in Lebanese territory on uh, just north of the border with Israel, 
um, that Israel works with Lebanese Christian militias to control. Mm -hmm. um, so Israel is training and paying them. And the idea here is that if they control this buffer zone, there won't be attacks. Um, that's not accurate. Um, so in addition to the fact that there is still shelling from Lebanon and attacks being launched, there is also this Israeli proxy, the South Lebanon army, that is um, fighting with people in South Lebanon, both Lebanese and Palestinian, as well as at this point, a UN peacekeeping force that is supposed to be patrolling this border region, but that is prevented from effectively doing so by the Israelis and by the South Lebanon army. So, by so that's the short version. That's the short version. So by 1982, so this is, you know, a, a long recurring uh, kind of conflict, conflictual border. There's been previous right. clashes and all the complexity you've described. So what happens in 1982? Why does Israel at this point decide that uh, that going for a full scale invasion and trying to destroy the PLO is is the right thing to do? What, what What's what's the trigger? Well, the way that you tend to start a lot of conversations about this particular period of history is that I wish it were as simple as in 1982. Um, mm. The point in time I think you want to look at is 1981 when there's an election in Israel. Um, the Likud government had won its first election in the 1970s. Before that, Labour had been sort of the ruling party, ruling coalition leader. So Likud in 1981 is facing an election that a lot of people think it might lose, and it um, begins to really sort of hype up security issues. Um, the Palestine issue, as well as really importantly, Iraq. Um, so this starts sort of 1980, 1981. Um, Likud wins the 1981 election, um, but there's this sense that they're in a precarious position. I mention this um, because there is a parallel to today, and it's not an but that the current Netanyahu government, also Likud, um, is, was facing before this war um, protests, massive, massive protests over judicial reforms um, in which reservists notably were playing a core role saying that they would refuse to serve. Um, and you also sort of saw these, these narratives that are not necessarily popular about, um, or not narratives that are not necessarily popular, but um, concern about right-wing policies and even extremist policies when we talk about certain coalition members of the current government, right? And and a particular security focus that is used mm -hmm. to mobilize supporters. So that's relevant here. Um, so the provocation in 1982, um, Israeli government officials have publicly said that they were waiting for an excuse to go into Lebanon in 1982. The invasion was planned in 1981 um, and Israel was actually, there were members of the Israeli government who were trying to provoke a reason for the invasion. And on this sort of border where there's shelling back and forth and incursions, this is easy to do. Right. Um, but between 81 and 82, you actually don't see that provocation. So when a member of a fringe organization, the Abu Nidal organization, they're not a member of the Palestine Liberation Organization, people consider them to be radicals, dissidents, extremely violent faction, they try to assassinate the Israeli ambassador to the United Kingdom. Um, and Israel begins shelling Lebanon as a response. This is when the PLO responds and shells Israel in retaliation. That's what triggers the 1982 invasion. Um, 
Israel goes in with really fuzzy goals. The stated goals, um, the big one is eradicating the PLO, which I'll get back to in a second, um, but also eliminating Syrian presence in Lebanon. Syria was involved because Lebanon was already in an ongoing civil war that had started in 1975, um, and installing a fri- like a friendly right-wing Marianite government um, that would basically be a, be sympathetic to Israeli interests, right? And Israel had been, again, if we go back to that buffer zone that I talked about earlier, Israel had been arming Maronite parties, um, specifically the Falange, since about 1976 and training them and had been um, helping to move members uh, of the Maronite parties from Northern Lebanon into this buffer zone to patrol the buffer right. zone. Um, so again, nothing simple here. <laughs> um, the Israelis attack. So you have this fuzzy goal of eradicating the PLO, but two things to think about here is one, this is vague, which means that you can very easily get mission creep. What does it mean to eradicate the PLO? And it's really hard to measure. How yeah. do you know when it's eradicated? And of course, we see the same language today yeah, with Hamas. Yeah. Right. Is this wiping out a military wing? And there are very, very clear distinctions in these organizations, both Hamas and at this time, the PLO, the guerrilla factions, mm. the governance apparatus, the cultural ap- apparatus, the medical apparatus, there are very clear distinctions between who's a combatant and who's not, right? There are very clear roles. Mm-hmm. Um, this is bureaucratically, um, you know, people referred to the PLO in Lebanon as like a state within a state or a proto-state or whatever. Um, so basically the vagueness of this goal can be used to justify any, like all kinds of um, expanding goals, um, both tactical and strategic. Um, so when the Israelis invade, they do so in three prongs into the Bekaa Valley, which is in eastern Lebanon, um, around Beaufort Castle, which was really heavy hand-to-hand fighting. It was this, it's this Crusader Council, uh, Crusader Castle that um, various military units had tunneled under and reinforced. You can actually still go visit it today. Um, and up the coastal highway where you have the cities of Sur, Saida, and Beirut, also Tyre, Sidon, and Beirut, if you're looking at like a UN document. It's just the difference between the Arabic and the Greek. Um, a lot of the Palestine Liberation Army and guerrilla forces collapsed, actually. They were not prepared for this sort of onslaught. Um, many of the militia forces in the refugee camps actually held out for several days. Um Three days in some places around Sur, uh, Aina Helwe, which is a large refugee camp outside of Saida, held out for a week mm-hmm. um, to the extent where um, the IDF was pulling out fighters during the night because they were getting picked off by these like local militia fighters, local Palestinian militia fighters. Um, in several cases, when it comes to the refugee camps, the IDF actually deployed white phosphorus in an attempt to subdue these populations. Um, When you talk to community leaders in these camps and when you look at UN reports or um, human rights reports, people will tell you in some cases that between 10 to 20 percent of the population of these refugee camps perished in this fighting. Um, So when we talk about civilian casualties, when we talk about disproportionate use of force, this is the Mm -hmm. kind of numbers that people are drawing upon to make those kinds of claims. In some cases, another 10% or so were sent to Israeli prisons and detention camps, both in Lebanon and in Israel. So Israel also, so Israel moves up the coastal highway um, and besieges West Beirut 
from June to the beginning of August. So the official population of Beirut at this point was 620,000. Listeners are going to want to consider that as in the current Gaza war. There was mass movement from one part of Lebanon, the south, north to Beirut, up this coastal highway. So Lebanon is sort of mountains in the middle at that part. So the coastal highway is basically funnels people right into the Beirut. People are fleeing the violence. Yeah. So, but, I mean, and we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people fleeing the violence. And this is, again, after 1978, when somewhere between 250 and 285,000 people had fled the South, mm-hmm. um, which has all kinds of political ramifications in Beirut at the time. Um, so the real population of the city at this point is is much larger, I would argue, than the 620,000. So the idea of bombs and shells, West Beirut, but also cuts off entry points, cuts off uh, electricity, and at times water, prevents the entry of food. This is a siege. Um, over 6,700 people die, at least 5,000 of them civilians. Um, in August, there is finally an agreement. This was um, a really complicated diplomatic process because various parties won't talk to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have the Lebanese state as well as the Palestine Liberation Organization, the Israelis, and you have uh, the U.S. envoy, Philip Habib, who's doing a lot of this work. Um, there's a PLO withdrawal. The PLO and its constituent guerrilla factions, the leaderships, leave Beirut um, in August. There's a massive sort of um, evacuation of uh over 14,000 people um and there a peace basically a peacekeeping force comes in to protect Palestinian civilians um that's british american french and italian less than a month later the sabra shatila massacre happens when we're talking about that that local those local militias those right-wing militias that were working with israel that were funded by and armed by israel um there's uh, the president-elect who comes from one of these parties, Bashir Jemayel, is assassinated actually by a member of the Syrian Socialist National Party, so not a Palestinian party. He's assassinated in mid-September, and these militias go into Sabra Shatila, which is a refugee camp and a district that's populated by Palestinian refugees, but also Syrians, Egyptians, Kurds, um, poor Lebanese, and they... Um, massacre somewhere between 2,000 and 3,000 people at least. They do so um, as Israel has cordoned off the area. So Israeli tanks are on the roads leading in. Um, They're illuminating the area with flares so that killing is continuing at night. They're shelling the district so people flee into bomb shelters, which have been scoped out by these militias ahead of time. So you get a lot of killings in bomb shelters. And this actually becomes later on the object of an internal Israeli um, investigation, the Khan Commission, which finds Ariel Sharon, who is the defense minister in Israel at the time, and chief of staff Rafael Eitan responsible for this. Um, And that's, again, an an internal Israeli Mm -hmm. inquiry um, because Sharon and Eitan sort of throughout this whole process have been sort of pushing this maximalist approach to the campaign, right? It was initially sort of sold as a much smaller, more limited campaign, and Etan and Sharon and others are pushing it. Um, So to sort of wrap up where that winds up, and this is in four months, the Israelis occupy southern Lebanon for another 18 years. um, And 
that territory changes over time, and we can talk more about that if you like. But we know that at least 19,085 people were killed in the first four months of the Lebanon War. Um, over 6,700 of them were in the siege of Beirut. It's important to note here, as in Gaza, we don't actually know how many people died. Um, those numbers are the numbers given by Lebanese police and hospitals. Not everyone who dies in these conflicts, particularly in siege and aerial bombardment, winds up in a hospital. Those casualty numbers don't include the people who showed up at clinics for first aid. They don't include the people whose families just buried them on family property or in public property. And that's a lot of people in these conflicts. So when we hear numbers like we're now above 15,000 um, dead, civilians dead in Gaza, that's a low number. There are people buried under the rubble. And there's always contention over casualty numbers. But I do think it's important to note with the kind of tactics that we see here that the casualty numbers are going to be low or that the reported casualty numbers will be low because you get so many missing. You get like hundreds of missing from Sabra Shatila alone. Um, nope. Yeah, I can cut it off there for now. And then well, we no, but I mean, but one of the things which is important here and which is interesting is that, you know, there's a, there's a key factor in the war going, having the political consequences that it has is that media coverage um, kind of exposes what's happening in, in Lebanon and a pretty strong protest movement emerges in Israel um, oh, yeah. against, against uh, the war, um, which was, you know, things that were putting some kind of political pressure and constraint on the Israeli government at the time to change tactics, to, you know, you, you know, to, to respond to this political pressure. Absolutely. And I think that in, in sort of um, in both time periods, in both 82 and today, you see critiques of these sort of broad, vague goals of destroying the PLO, destroying Hamas. I'll be curious to see if anyone picks up on sort of the language of buffer zones and the fact that those are not apolitical, easy spaces to manage. They were hugely contentious in South Lebanon and remain so, um, as, as we know mm -hmm. from like interchanges with Hezbollah today. Um, so I note in the in the foreign affairs piece that I just published that one of the reasons that Reagan pressured Israel for a ceasefire in 1982 and in fact cut off um, weapons sales at some point, invoking U.S. law to cut off weapons sales because of how they were being used against civilians, um, was that the American public was watching all of this on TV, right? Um, and specifically as the siege of the of Beirut progressed. Um, they were watching all of this destruction play out on TV. There were certainly American and European journalists present for this. And Reagan referred to it, quote, as a Holocaust in a call mm -hmm. with Menachem Begin. Um, that's extraordinarily important in of itself, right? In using that kind of language with Menachem Begin. But Reagan was watching poll numbers and people were deeply upset about this. Um, it's also worth noting that as... Um, after the PLO withdrawal, when we're in South Lebanon and Israel at this point in time until 83 in some places and 85 in others is occupying Saida and Sur, um, tens of thousands of men are arrested and put into prison camps or put in prisons in Israel. And you get a civilian-led social movement in Saida specifically that's led expressly by women, qua women, who are making demands on the UN, making demands on the IDF, and explicitly courting 
foreign media attention to bring attention to their plight, right? So they're um, doing things like speaking to the media or issuing statements. They're engaging in sort of public um, protests and demonstrations. So when you go back to this time period and look at like associated press wires, you actually get fairly graphic coverage of the violence that is occurring under Israeli occupation in Saida specifically. Um, I've been able to draw on a lot of just newswire reports from this time period that detail um, really graphically the kind of like militia violence. Um, and this again would be these right-wing Lebanese militias that are acting under Israeli, sort of the umbrella of the Israeli occupation who are expelling Palestinians from their houses and using arson. And we can see some parallels to those tactics being used in the occupied West Bank today. Um, so you see actors calling on the international media to recognize their plight, right? Um, I think that there's a distinction today, maybe not a distinction, but I do think that social media has diversified the media environment in which we're operating today. It would be ridiculous to say that that's not the case, right? Mm -hmm. um, it has allowed for, I would say, a broader array of stories and for specifically like Palestinian and on the ground stories. Like you can go on Instagram right now and see what it looks like in Gaza. Well, it's um, that is. Right, <laughs> right. That's that's a whole other um, issue that's really worth recognizing, um, including because people have now put out guides on how to get around that censorship, mm -hmm. right? So that idea of part of um, nonviolent mobilization during war and part of advocacy is actually figuring out how to get around the constraints of a media environment, whether that environment is shaped by corporate media that is either going to publish in newspapers or broadcast on TV, or more broadly, social media, where you have these platforms' ability to censor. So figuring out how to navigate an environment, actually, I mm. think we should be talking about that as the key of advocacy in wartime. Um, but you do see, it's it's not new to sort of say, like, there's this article by Paul Mason in 2014 that says, and this was during another um, Israeli um, mm -hmm. campaign operation in Gaza, that Israel was then losing the social media battle. And that's in part because of this diversified media environment. Um, Eugene Finkel and I, among others, have noted that some of this actually has to be seen in the context of the comparative frames that wars in places like Syria have provided for you know, intense bombardment of civilian areas, as well as the targeting of hospitals, right? These are now narratives that people have access to and can apply to Gaza. Um, that's a bad thing. Like we're 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 against yeah. hospitals now. Yeah, we we better be against bombing hospitals. Uh, <laughs> I I I joke, but it, but it's, it's deadly serious, though, right? I mean, we have international uh -huh. laws of war that yes. are supposed to prevent this sort of thing, and when yes. people get caught up in these partisan narratives uh, about wartime, uh, the 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 laws of war get neglected. And I think right. uh, this is endemic to these kinds of wars. And it's just, it's absolutely horrific. I think that's absolutely too, true. And I don't think, I, I don't think in this particular case that we can argue that either Hamas or Israel has respected the laws of war. Absolutely like, not. Let's just, I, I don't think that's a contentious thing to say. Um, I do think it's worth watching the narratives and then seeing how, various images push back at them. Like if you are watching Arabic language media this week, you have seen the images from Nasser Hospital of like content warning here. 
decomposing babies in the NICU unit who could not be removed due to the fighting, right? That's that's an extremely powerful and deeply upsetting image, Which right? Which people on the other side aren't even seeing. Right, that's correct. Like, but that is very present. So Nasser Hospital is in is in Gaza, to be clear. It's a Palestinian hospital. These are Palestinian babies. But that is what Arab audiences right. were sharing on Telegram, on Instagram, through WhatsApp channels all week. Um, and that has its own like uh, mobilizing power, whether it's nonviolent or violent mobilization, right? Um, I think the other thing is that the role of disinformation isn't new. Um, it, the, it was actually the Israeli press in 1982 that was debunking several um, IDF reports or claims. There's a very famous one around like the type of and condition of tanks that the PLO had. They were claiming that the PLO had like 200 shiny brand new tanks and it was like 90 crappy Soviet tanks. Mm -hmm. So, um, and it was the Israeli press that debunked that. Um, there was also contention over specifically Likud ministers claiming that a certain number of Israeli um, citizens had died because of PLO shelling from Lebanon and the Israeli media debunked that and actually forced the government to revise its numbers. And I think we see disinformation on all sides today, right? As well as just various actors engaging in the spreading of disinformation to troll, to cause chaos for whatever. Um, and this is in the, you know, the realm of reused images, but we're now also using, we're also now seeing um, media corporations actively selling AI generated images of this conflict, which is extraordinarily dangerous. And one only has to think for like two seconds about the potential consequences of various images being shared that could cause violence at all different levels, but could also be used to cause like mass population movement. Um, so I, I do think we need to like be thinking about that. When it comes to the protest movement, um, Sabra Shatila actually um, motivated one of the largest, until these recent judicial protests, one of the largest um, series of protests in Israeli history, somewhere between 350,000 and 400,000 Israelis protested um, after Sabra Shatila, um, very much in like a not in our name sort of narrative. And you had opposition leaders saying that there is, um, I might not get the exact word right, but basically like that there is room for a more compassionate Israeli policy, right? So that debate was very present in 1982. There was an anti-war movement that also lasted throughout the occupation, particularly as it became sort of this grind in the buffer zone, which when we hear language about buffer zones in northern Gaza today being shared by Israeli politicians, it's worth noting that that was an extremely contentious space where thousands of Lebanese wound up being incarcerated in a prison camp that was funded and staffed by Israeli trained mm -hmm. um, militia mem Lebanese militia members, right? Um, but that the buffer zone is not this sort of like easy undertaking um, and that there are both international and domestic ramifications to what winds up happening in those buffer zones. Mm -hmm. But I do think it's important to underscore that there was this series of protests, that there was an anti-war movement. Um, under the commission, over under that commission of inquiry, um, both Eitan and Sharon were, were called out, um, both resigned in 1983. Right. And I think that we'll see we already know that there's immense pressure on Netanyahu and that his polling numbers are mm -hmm. extremely low. So 
what you see here, I think, is perverse incentives for someone, for a politician like Netanyahu when it comes to how this war um, continues. One last thing, which is, you know, kind of looking at this kind of in the big picture is that, you know, a lot of the language that we hear now about the about the war in Gaza is that, you know, it, we, we have to find a way to, to end this once and for all. You know, you have to end Hamas. You have to stop the, you know, stop this from ever happening again. And you think about this, you know, this war obviously didn't start on October 7th. There's been. No. Yeah, I mean, Gaza has been under blockade since 2005 and occupied since 67. And you've had multiple repeated episodes of Israeli bombardment and all these things over the years. And then when you look back at something similar with Lebanon, you had similar language, as you said, in 82 and the PLO once and for all. And, you know, looking back at that kind of forgotten history, like 40 years later, it's like, wow, they they really didn't end uh, the PLO or end conflict once and for all. This, and no. kind of looking at that maybe as a way of thinking about the utility of this comparison between uh, 1982 and, and today. Right. That you see same language, different actors. And I think the same sort of. Um, you know, um, really misdirected idea that you can end resistance with violence like Mm -hmm. that's that's not how this works and i'm not original in saying that um i think that any serious expert on this particular um you know realm of politics or however you want to call it is going to say there is no military solution to israel palestine um people have been saying that for years that's not new um i I, I think that part of what's going on is that uh, to be a bit cynical is that the goal isn't necessarily to eradicate, but to weaken enough so that people get a better bargaining position. But also Likud has never been in favor of like real negotiations or, and has never seriously pursued a two-state solution. Again, not a controversial position to take. So, um, so the question becomes um, who's going to, step in here right and um the u.s is uniquely situated to do that um biden would not be the first u.s president to seriously say you need to put the brakes on this and it's not like ronald reagan was a great friend to the palestinians that's not what i'm saying here i'm saying that um members of his administration and reagan were aware of the very very real possibility of a regional conflagration, and I think also recognize that this was not something that was going to get solved with violence, and that violence sort of, especially in this situation, feeds the extremes. And we should all be aware of that particular dynamic. Well, okay, let's uh, let's take a short break. Uh, it's, uh, it's a great pity that your research is so relevant to today's policy debates, but uh, thanks for sharing it. Hey, welcome back uh, to the Middle East Political Science Podcast. Uh, we're still speaking with Sarah Parkinson, and uh, we want to shift the gaze a little bit and talk about a couple of really interesting articles that you've published uh, in the last uh, uh, in the last little bit. And I want to start with um, the w- the one that came out in International Studies Quarterly about um, sexual violence in humanitarian uh, in the humanitarian sector. Um, mm-hmm. and- this is this was one of the more, most interesting articles I've read recently, um, and part of that is how you came about it and how the project developed. Tell us a little bit about the, you know, just generally what the article was about and how you got there. 
So first of all, I want to give credit to um, my co-authors, Valerie yeah. DeCoyer, who's at Leiden University, and Sophia Smith, who is at the University of Chicago. This was very much a collective effort. And the only reason we sort of were able to identify the patterns and the dynamics that we did was as a team. Um, and they deserve um, a huge amount of credit for the work that they've done here. We say in the article, and it's worth underscoring again, that we did not set out to study sexual violence in humanitarian communities. This project was about ethical communities of practice in um, conflict adjacent spaces. So it was a comparison we were interviewing uh, humanitarian actors, journalists, and academics to look at how people negotiated the everyday ethical challenges of working in conflict-adjacent spaces. So um, two of us were doing fieldwork in, simultaneously in northern Iraq and in Uganda, um, the sites of two um, that were you know, proximate to two of the largest forced displacement crises uh, in the world at the time. Um, so we start asking humanitarians or so we're both we both have an interview protocol um, and we're doing participant observation in different spaces where humanitarians live their lives. Right. So this might be in offices, but it also might be in restaurants or bars. Just thinking about how people live lives that are um, and, and negotiate spaces that are marked often by extreme violence, inequality, deprivation. Um, and when we start talking to people about, and when we start qu asking questions about everyday ethics, people start coming back at us with stories of sexual violence and harassment from their colleagues. And that's not what we had prepared mm -hmm. for. Um, the researchers were, were all trained in um, trauma-informed interviewing. Um, so we were able to put those practices, um, into effect and to sort of ask, is that something that, um, you want to talk about more, um, but not to sort of, um, in not to ask questions that we were not supposed to be asking, right. But to be respectful of what someone chooses to bring up in a conversation about ethics and to recognize that if someone is choosing to respond with a story about sexual violence, whether something that they have experienced or that a colleague has experienced when we are asking about ethics, that is, that is significant. And it's particularly mm -hmm. significant as we started to recognize a pattern and one that existed across space. Right. Um, and so this starts coming out in interviews, in um, observations. Um, we were observing gender dynamics constantly in specifically leisure spaces. Right. And part of what we discuss in the article is the fact that humanitarians um, and this is specifically um, white humanitarians from the global north mm -hmm. um, tend to congregate in certain spaces in conflict adjacent spaces. And this is because of security protocols and all kinds of social dynamics um, need to blow off steam, whatever. And we talk about sort of racial dynamics in the humanitarian sector in the piece. And I can get into that in another yeah. question. But the participant observation made it very, very clear to us that sexual harassment was a persistent dynamic mm -hmm. in these spaces. And that, again, was across space. So the third part of this was that we started looking at socialization and did an analysis of um, 
books that are recommended, books, articles, movies that are recommended to um, people who are about to join the humanitarian sector. So often, um, <laughs> excuse me, young go-getters, very much like some of, I think, both of our students, right? And um, thinking about how they are being taught about what to expect as employees in the humanitarian sector and started coding these texts for various themes surrounding race, gender, sexuality, et cetera, and um, found a lot of really interesting material that pointed to what we call sort of sector-specific um, sexual scripts, which is, and the term sexual scripts is um, a term that we borrow um, from um, Hirsch and Kahn's work on um, on sexual violence uh, on university campuses in in the U.S. Mm -hmm. To be clear, and so one of the things which is interesting here is that you look at these as these kind of I think you call them like closed communities where people are intentionally socialized, where their membership in the community, in a sense, becomes a core part of their identity, um, right? And they're, and they're kind of hermetically sealed off from other potential influences. I mean, for the sociology geeks in the audience, we're going straight back to George Simmel, right? Mm -hmm. Or not, sorry, ah, no, <laughs> delete, delete. We're going straight back sorry. to Irving we're Goffman. Keeping that one. We're keeping that one. <laughs> no, we're not. No, 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 not George Simmel. We're going back to Irving Goffman yeah. um, and the work on the asylum, right? So what we're doing here is going back to, um, to Tessa, delete that or I will find you. So what we're doing here is going back to Irving Goffman and his work around the asylum and the idea of these closed social settings of very specific norms and loyalties and practices. And one of the key elements here is that um, within these closed communities, um, people understand each other in different ways and often feel like they're the only people who can understand each other, but also that to do something like report on sexual violence or sexual harassment, and this comes up in the Hirsch and Khan in university friend groups as well, um, would be to betray the community. But there's been a ton of really smart work on the humanitarian sector, whether or not you call it Aidland or the humanitarian bubble, about how these are often communities apart. And that's in part because people who are not from the communities where they are working as humanitarians. And this is a, there's a really important distinction that we could talk mm -hmm. about for hours in the humanitarian world between sort of the quote unquote expat workers and the quote unquote local workers and their pay disparities. And this is a racialized divide, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but where when people are living on compounds apart from society, different, very distinct dynamics start to emerge. They don't apply as much to many of the people who are living locally, often with their families, with social lives that are outside of the humanitarian world, they're subject to a different set of dynamics. And to be totally clear, I don't want to imply that they are not also, um, that they do not also experience sexual violence. It's just that the processes are a yeah. bit different for those communities. But for both local workers and for obviously beneficiary communities, there's been research on how they experienced sexual harassment and violence. What emerged in our work unintentionally was about the sort of expat and often white community that is doing humanitarian work. 
Now, you and your co-authors also look at these Facebook and WhatsApp groups that emerge, these Me Too, hashtag Me Too type groups, where the scope and scale of this starts becoming evident. So yes and no. On Facebook, um, we only got the reading lists from Facebook. Those oh, are closed in private communities. And this is actually really important in terms of like the ethics of the work. Mm -hmm. And we're thinking mm -hmm. about if you're a researcher who's doing this kind of work. Um, if a Facebook group says that it is private, we respect that. But if it has a Goodreads list that is public, we'll use the Goodreads list to add to the list of things that we, to the list of books that we're going to analyze. But like any discussions in there, right, that's right. private. That's really, um, really ethical. Yeah. No, and, and that's how it has to be. When we're talking about a Twitter hashtag that's aid to, for example, that's intended to be public. Right. Um, so we do look at that and how, you know, various blogs from DevEx or Secret Aid Worker start talking about these issues. Um, and that becomes really important in terms of a public narrative, especially because these are really hard issues to, for example, survey people about. We know that people that the response rates tend to be low, that there is huge pressure not to talk about these issues in the humanitarian community. Um, I actually think that if we had gone out to study sexual harassment and violence, people would not have talked to us. But when we said the word ethics, what was present in their minds as a significant ethical issue were these particular dynamics. And, so and that we had a responsibility to report those findings as researchers. And one of the things that I think make, which really makes this article stand out is, as you began uh, your, your comments, is the genuinely comparative nature of it. If this was only happening in Kurdistan or only happening in Uganda, that would be one thing, but you're observing this right. across multiple sites, which is kind of a nice way of bringing out the value of this kind of comparative multi-sided research. Right, and I would add that every time we've presented this, every time I don't, it's, and, and it, someone has sort of come up to us afterwards and be like, you know, I used to work in the humanitarian sector and I have definitely experienced these dynamics. Um, I think that we've had our eyes open to since writing the work to even other forms of it. Um, but where we've all become, if I can speak for my co-authors, I think that we, that we're fairly convinced that this, that there are, that this, that these dynamics are going to play out obviously according to context um but where we see them across spaces and where we've spoken to a number of people since publishing the piece in the humanitarian sector who have said yeah i was posted wherever or i was deployed wherever and this was definitely happening yeah, really Which is important. really depressing. No, it's depressing, but it's important work. And uh, it's also important that something like this appears in kind of a mainstream disciplinary journal um, and that, that kind of it's getting to an audience which wouldn't ordinarily necessarily be exposed to something or maybe wouldn't think it was important. Yeah, well, I think one of the things we say at the beginning of the article is if we're like we've been having and there are a number of brilliant scholars who have been working on wartime sexual violence mm -hmm. for decades at this point and we know a fair about uh, we know a fair amount about the use of sexual violence in wartime right and why militant groups might use rape for example um 
There is increasing work on violence in peacekeeping communities, for example, both within and between peacekeepers and um, and local populations, right? Um, there's more awareness of the way in which there are issues with sexual exploitation and assault in surrounding humanitarian missions and just mm -hmm. the ways in which um, various sites of like inequality, violence, deprivation can, can leave people vulnerable to, um, to sexual exploitation and violence. In this case, what we wanted to make a point about is that this isn't just about workplace sexual harassment and violence. This is also part of a larger category of wartime sexual violence in the context that we're studying, right? That humanitarians are part of that environment. The humanitarian compounds that we talk about and the living conditions that we talk about that are facilitating some of this violence are part of that built environment of both humanitarianism and conflict adjacent spaces. Um, and that's, you know, again, brilliant scholars who have worked on humanitarianism have talked about the compound mm -hmm. in, in all kinds of different ways. But one of the things we wanted to bring to bear is that this is, in fact, a subset of wartime sexual violence. Now, it's really important and it's really interesting, but let's change gears once again. <laughs> um, and uh, it, it's not every day that um, that uh, in a in a political science uh, podcast, a publication in the American Political Science Review would be relegated to the third spot. But uh, it just came out, so we're adding it here at the last minute. Uh, ah. the letter that you've just published with what I consider to be the Sarah Parkinson signature move of uh, problematizing our understanding of data and um, making us think differently about what's going into the data sets we study. We talked uh, I don't, earlier this year, maybe last season, about your uh, your article on discourtesy bias and the way that prob ethical problems and the way that we collect data from refugees isn't just an ethical problem, but actually pollutes and changes the quality of the data that we're receiving. And now you've done something different. You're looking now at uh, media reporting and, uh, mm -hmm. and, and and how patterns in media reporting might be systematically skewing some of our, our favorite uh, conflict data sets. So tell us a little bit about this one and what you think people need to know. So first of all, there is a long, long tradition of talking about the various ways in which um, media sourced data has various biases. Um, they're very often assumed to be directional and predictable, mm -hmm. right? So bigger events get more coverage. I actually just talked about that a little earlier with Gaza and Lebanon, right? A bombing is gonna get more coverage than an arrest for example, right. right? There are modes of violence that are that are much less visible. So we know this, we know that this affects coverage. Um, there's an urban bias, right? Um, reporters might not have access to um, rural areas. There are language biases, right? Um, lesser spoken languages or media in lesser spoken languages might not be incorporated into data sets. Um, so I want to acknowledge, A, that there's been a lot of work on bias in the data sets and that the assumption is that it is directional and predictable. Um, and that there's also been some recent work on whether or not it's language distinctions in, in media um, 
and how that feeds into data sets. So Killian Clark, who is also a Middle East person, has done that work. Um, and there have also been um, very recently, uh, uh, there was an article in the Journal of Peace Research by, uh, at the time, I understand she was a graduate student at Yale, Sophia Dawkins, who wrote um, on how on sort of uh, death counts in uh, South Sudan, right? And how those were tabulated and how precise they were. So we're thinking about casualty counts. I was doing something a little different in that I had the sense that um, from years of working around media actors in the Middle East um, and actually talking to people who are like, wait a minute, right, right. wait, our, our reporting isn't supposed to be representative. Who's using that as representative? Yeah, you have that um, nice line, the media aren't in the business of creating data. Right, like, and they don't think they are. So when you tell them how their work is used, they're like, wait, no, no, no. Like I I, I didn't source that to be scientific. Um, and and you, on the part of some, I've seen people get very upset that their reporting might've been used as actual like, Right. definitive in a way that like where they are reporting stories but they're reporting stories because of all kinds of different factors they chose to report a story they were told by an editor to report on a story they got a casualty count at a particular point in time um you know and and the terms that I use to sort of get at this are of consistency and constancy. Do you consistently report on the same issue over the time? Um, or do you consistently report like across space, for example? And is it constant? Right. Um, and the answer is no. Mm -hmm. right? Like reporters can't be everywhere at once. Um they have finite time and extremely finite resources. Um, there are um, biases both in terms of what they can access um, and how they can frame it and how editors frame it. And different things can be contentious at different times. So um, well, I think there we can are see all this. We can see this in real oh. time. Look at reporting from Gaza yes. right now and look at the, <laughs> right? the, the controversies over every single mass casualty event or whatever. And you can see that in real time, what you're talking about. For the way that I, that this is going to be really sad. And I want to say that, that ahead of time. Um, and I mourn these losses, but you figure that over 60 journalists have been killed in Gaza, right? So the people who we had reporting on this conflict from the ground mm -hmm. at the beginning of this conflict are no longer present to be reporting on it now. Mm -hmm. That doesn't even count those who have been wounded, arrested, or intimidated. There are also Israeli journalists who have been killed in, in the context of this conflict and Lebanese journalists, but the grand majority of those who have been killed are Gazans on the ground. And that is worth noting. And the fact that there over time is a decrease in coverage, but where the assumption in our data sets is that there would be constant coverage, constant and consistent coverage from the start of the bombardment of Gaza to today is yeah. what would shape that data. And what I'm arguing is that we actually need to understand that 60 journalists in a place that doesn't have many more than 60 journalists are dead and, you and should be mourned, but it should also be recognized how that is going to affect our view of the conflict and what we treat as scientific data.
No, absolutely. You talk about this in the in the context of Mexico, where you cited an article about uh, how yeah. once, once the uh, cartel started assassin killing journalists, journalists right. stopped covering the violence. Or they cover it in different ways. Right. So the way that it could be coded is going to change because the journalists got more vague about things, which means that if you're trying to code for certain events, it's going to become less possible. Right. And that doesn't mean that those events aren't happening. It means that they're not reported. And that's different. Mm -hmm. Right. There's a distinction between the two. And the journalists are still reporting on violence, but they might not be getting at the minutiae. And in a lot of data sets, it's that minutia that matters quite a lot. Yeah. And so I think I think this article is going to go like I in my uh, in my scope and methods class, we have a whole uh, a whole class section, a whole set, a whole class on uh, what goes into the making of data sets. And I think this article is going to go right in there next to Killian Clark's and the other <laughs> uh, just in terms of getting students to think about like where how is the sausage made? And I think that. Um, right. And so I, I think that. This, it's really, I'm really, really glad that you got this published in there. And um, I encourage people to go take a look at it, especially since you managed to get it completely open access, uh, which is I always did. a good thing for getting it read. What I will say is that um, a lot of people are like, what's the way to fix this? These mm -hmm. are not necessarily fixable biases. That doesn't mean that there aren't opportunities to actually sort of excavate the politics. I think particularly at a country level of how the media, how reporting is being shaped. Is it a censorship dynamic? Is it a crowding out dynamic? Is it a framing dynamic? Is it that certain words can't be used? Is it because cartels are intimidating journalists? Mm -hmm. That's actually fascinating politics. And the opportunity for what I would argue is some really potential, some, some, a really great opportunity for multi-method work. So it's not about correcting or fixing or fact-checking it. It's actually looking at politics and how they're represented and what that tells us about a situation on the ground. So that's what I think people should do, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, but the, 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 it's important, though. The trends you see in the data set might mean something, just not what you think they mean. You might see. Yeah, a, I mean. Yeah, you might see a dramatic decline in, you know, uh, hate crimes attributed to a particular group um, where that's mm -hmm. not actually reflecting what's yeah, happening. Yeah, maybe they just around. changed their name. It's reflecting editorial decisions or it's reflecting right. a shift in national politics where people don't want to report on that issue anymore or all kinds right. of things could be happening that are worth exploring. But it, it yeah. changes the direction of your analysis. Right. I mean, I, I talk in the article about a, a reporter who was basically told to work Donald Trump into as many of her articles as possible so that more people would read them and she would get more clicks. And was Trump relevant to the, all of that? Mm -hmm. No. Um, but if you were basically, um, you know, running something, you would pick up Trump a, a lot more than he was really present in those politics. But that was that's a market dynamic. That's not right. It's it's there's work being done there that isn't what our assumptions as in terms of the data generation processes in political science, that's not what we're understanding is going on there. And that's the problem. No, it's fascinating. So we've been speaking to Sarah Parkinson about uh, three of her recent publications, uh, Foreign Affairs on uh, on Lebanon and uh, the APSR on reporting and uh, the ISQ piece on sexual violence. 
And we haven't even talked about your actual current uh, research agenda. So we'll have to come back to that. And it's going to uh, have to have me back. <laughs> I'll have you back. But I do want to say congratulations on uh, for reader, for listeners who don't know, Sarah and uh, a, a really, truly stellar group of her colleagues have been for years putting on something called the ARC, the Advancing Research and Conflict uh, Conference. And Sarah, if you have it left in you, give us a two minute blurb on what that is and why it's so important, because it is so important. So basically, ARC is a response to the reality that both a lot of graduate students who work in violence and conflict affected spaces feel like they're not adequately trained to be doing that work. And the idea that in terms of other professions that are operating in these spaces, namely humanitarians and journalists, um, political scientists and I would argue other academics really don't have the same level of professionalization in terms of negotiating both um, the practical and the ethical aspects of that work, which in turn affect the data. ARC's whole philosophy is that um, your practical, your practical skills and your ethical commitments are all going to shape your data. So ARC was developed to basically provide training to graduate students in advanced research methods, ethics, and um, practical skills like first aid, um, and to bring together scholars who do intensive fieldwork in fragile and violence-affected environments to um, sort of talk about the things and talk about the aspects of that work um, in a supportive space that is also very committed to membership to um sorry not to membership uh to mentorship so yeah. it's we're in our fifth year now and it's probably been one of the most rewarding intellectual experiences at least of my career to date um and a privilege to work with the students that we've worked with it's a really amazing project. You also have an incredible bibliography on research ethics and uh, the like, which I would strongly encourage um, uh, graduate students or, or anyone to check out. It's a real goldmine of um, Thank you. sources. And I know a lot of work went into that. So uh, a lot of a lot of work went into all of these things. Uh, so let's uh, say thank you, Sarah, for joining us. And I look forward to having you back uh, next time. Thanks so much for having me. Da, da, da.